0: Good morning from the Financial Times. Today is Tuesday, January 19th, and this is your FT News Briefing. Europe's demand for Asian-made products is up, but getting the goods from one continent to the other is posing a real challenge for the supply chain. Russian opposition leader Alexei Navalny is sentenced to a month of jail time and the future of Italy's political leadership is anything but certain. Plus, it's been nearly a year since the pandemic caused many of us to work from home. But one asset manager says investors shouldn't sleep on the lure of the office. We'll find out why. I'm Mark Filipino, and here's the news you need to start your day. This is a story about something you might not have given a whole lot of thought to, shipping containers. But the demand for shipping containers in the pandemic has had a big effect on global trade. The cost of sending a 40-foot container from Asia to Europe was $2,000 back in November. Now, according to shippers and importers, that cost is more than $9,000. The main reason for this increase? There's a limited supply of containers. Early last year, coronavirus lockdowns hit global trade and shipping lines canceled hundreds of trips. That meant thousands of empty containers were left in Europe and the United States. But then Western demand for Asian-made goods rebounded in the second half of 2020. Shippers had to compete for available containers and it sent rates soaring. So what does that mean for you, the consumer? Well, for one, there might be delays in the products you order depending on where you're located. Even if the final product you ordered isn't being shipped from Asia, raw materials might be. And it could mean it takes longer for your order to arrive. And then there's the price. The UK's Association of Manufacturers of Domestic Appliances said that producers don't expect to absorb the shipping container cost. And it could eventually fall on customers to help make up the difference. Russia police arrested Vladimir Putin's most prominent critic over the weekend. Alexei Navalny was taken into custody at Moscow's main airport on Sunday. He was returning from Germany, where he was recovering from an assassination attempt he blamed on the Kremlin. And yesterday, Russia detained Navalny. FT's Moscow bureau chief, Henry Foy, has more on this sequence of events.
1: So on Monday, in the very police station where Alexei Navalny was forced to spend Sunday night, uh, a Russian judge arrived and they set up a makeshift caught in the police station. Now, that judge was asked to hear charges from Russia's prison service that Alexei Navalny has breached the terms of a 2014 fraud conviction and a suspended sentence for that, that mandated him to come to meetings regularly. Now, Now, the Russian Prison Service alleged that he didn't come to those meetings over the last year, some of which occurred when he was in Germany recovering from this nerve agent attack. And a judge on Monday ruled that there was grounds to suggest that he had breached those terms and so sent him to jail for 30 days. Now, February the 2nd, there'll be another court hearing where that full case is heard. If the Russian Prison Service get their way, Mr. Navalny's three and a half year suspended sentence could be converted to a three and a half year jail sentence.
0: So how has the international community reacted to the detention of Navalny?
1: So there's been widespread condemnation from Western powers. The EU, both the president of the EU Council, Jean-Michel, and the president of the European uh, Commission, uh, Ursula von der Leyen, called for his immediate release uh, and called on Russia to find the perpetrators of his poisoning. Three EU states went further than that. Latvia, Lithuania and Estonia have all called for the new sanctions against Russia to be imposed by the EU if he's not released. And across the pond in the US, both Mike Pompeo, the outgoing Secretary of State, and Jake Sullivan, who's President-elect Joe Biden's nominee for national security advisor condemned the Kremlin in very strong statements. So widespread condemnation from the West. But frankly, I don't think Moscow really cares too much about that. And a lot of these statements were made before the 30-day sentence was handed down on Monday.
0: Henry Foy is the FT's Moscow bureau chief. Giuseppe Conte's run as Italy's prime minister might be in jeopardy. Last week, a junior coalition partner resigned from the government. The former PM, Matteo Renzi, led this coalition. Renzi said Conte did not consult other parties sufficiently when drawing up plans to spend roughly 200 billion euros of the country's EU coronavirus recovery money. And without the support of Renzi's party, Conte lost his majority in Italy's Senate. So lawmakers in the Senate will hold a confidence vote today. If Conte loses, he'll have to hand in his resignation to President Sergio Mattarella. Conte is just a few months away from becoming only the 15th ever Italian prime minister to last more than three years in office. The future of real estate is uncertain. The coronavirus has made people uneasy about gathering in crowded indoor places, and it's a big reason why many of us abandoned the office and are instead working from home in our pajamas. But the head of Brookfield Asset Management thinks the market shouldn't give up on real estate. Bruce Flatt is the chief executive of the Canadian investment giant, and he recently spoke to the FT's Michael McKenzie. I have Michael on the line with me now to talk more about Flatt's view. Michael, let's start with the state of real estate right now. Is it Fair to say that things aren't looking good for the property sector at the moment?
2: Certainly. I mean, we're all working from home or largely from home. And a lot of major cities, such as London and New York, are either in lockdowns or observing very strict social distancing behavior. So offices are deserted. People don't wish to come in and work. They're not taking public transport. So real estate has suffered. And I think last year was a very tough year. and. The real estate sector was certainly at the forefront of areas of the equity market where investors said, I don't want to own this.
0: And what does Brookfield Asset Management Chief Executive Bruce Flatt disagree with the market?
2: Well, to be honest, he has skin in the game here. I mean, Brookfield Asset Management are a huge holder of commercial real estate shopping malls logistics centers around the world i mean they own canary wharf they own brookfield center in new york they're a major major player in this industry and i think in the interview with with mr flat he did make some interesting points i mean he made the point that for example people do need an office there's a sense of camaraderie it's also very important for younger workers to be mentored by more experienced colleagues and I think also there's an element here that, you know, people do want to come back to the office once it's safe to do so. And I think what's interesting about the future of real estate here is that when Brookfield actually asked its employees to come back into their New York office, they had to actually expand by a floor and a half to accommodate more workers because it turns out that at any given time, about a third of their staff are usually traveling. So we do sort of see this element here where potentially there'll probably be less business travel, given what's happened in the wake of the pandemic and people communicating through Zoom and and Google Chats, for example. But that could actually conversely result in a a greater need for office space.
0: So, Michael, is the truth, I don't know, somewhere in the middle? Is the real estate sector both undervalued and also not as valuable as what Flat is making out to be?
2: I think you could probably look at that and and consider that to be a fairly good observation. I mean, I do think it's... True that the stock market was undervaluing real estate. As soon as Brookfield announced they're going to take the rest of Brookfield property private, the stock jumped 17.5%. Whether the stock actually ultimately gets the sort of level where they believe it should truly trade, that remains to be seen. But I also think there's another interesting component here. Brookfield asset management has its own private equity arm, and there is a huge desire amongst investors, long-term investors, such as pension plans and insurers to own long-term assets like real estate. And that has been uh, intensified by the fact that bond yields are now close to zero, and in many cases, negative around the world. So I think what Brookfield are really looking at here is take the property arm private, and then over time, divest the assets, can either sell them outright, you can partner with long-term investors, such as insurers and pension plans, Or you can just set up new funds. And so Brookfield can set up a new fund that holds real estate assets and then sell that to private investors and in that way generate a fee and a return above what they're currently getting, having Brookfield property as a sort of unit on its own. So I think that's really the message there.
0: Michael McKenzie is the FT's U.S. investment editor. Thank you, Michael. Thank you. You can read more on all of these stories at FT.com. This has been your daily FT News Briefing. Make sure you check back tomorrow for the latest business news.
1: Hi, this is Matt. And Sean. From Two Black Guys. Good credit. If you own or operate a business, whether it's a local operation or a global corporation...